this section bridges the gap between what we have just learned concerning the activity of the dragon and the two beasts in Revelation 12 and 13 and the pouring out of the seven bowls of God's wrath, which is a description of the final judgment, which we will encounter in chapter 16. Uh, And so I would like to just simply read chapters 14 and 15 all at once to kind of give you a sense of, of what is being said here. And then after I make a few remarks about the section in general, we're going to return to verses 1 through 5 of chapter 14 to give special attention uh, to them. Uh, the New Testament reading is Revelation 14 and 15. The sermon text is Revelation 14, 1 through 5. Uh, hear now the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, clear, and authoritative word. John writes, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drunk, uh, to drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Verse 14 Then I looked. And behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle and across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. 
and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for about 1,600 stadia. Chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what happened to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang... And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So far the reading of God's word, we do pray that the Lord would bless uh, the teaching of it as well. May he also help us to apply it to our lives. I do want you to notice a few things about chapters 14 and 15 in general, which we have just read. First of all, notice that these chapters do eventually take us to the time of the end when the wrath of God will be poured out upon the wicked. We certainly have a description of that in 14, 17 through 19. Uh, Chapter 15 does also set the stage for the outpouring of the seven bowls of God's wrath. These are called seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And then in chapter 16, we will see a description of the outpouring of these seven bowls of God's wrath. So notice that eventually we are taken to the time of the end in these chapters. Secondly, notice that we are taken to the end, not abruptly, but progressively. Uh, By that I mean that in chapter 14, we have a description of some historical progress. Remember that three angels appear and fly overhead. Uh, The first preaches the gospel to those dwelling on the earth. Also, he says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Revelation 14 Uh, Verse 7, the second angel announces the fall of Babylon. The third angel warns of the doom that will come upon all who worship the beast and its image and receive a mark on his forehead or on his hand, Revelation 14, 9. And so indeed the end will come very suddenly from man's perspective. He will come like a thief in the night. Uh, But this passage does make clear that even in the time of the end, the gospel will be preached And warnings will be given uh, to the ungodly. Uh, From the heavenly perspective, there will be a process. And three, and here is the most important observation for our purposes this morning. Recognize that these two chapters are again set in heaven. I say again because remember that chapters 12 and 13 of the book of Revelation had a earthly setting. 
Uh, We were there for some time, and the setting was earthly. It is true that we were at the beginning of chapter 12, given a glimpse of the heavenly and spiritual battle that was won by Christ upon his resurrection and his ascension. Do you remember that, that a great victory was won in heaven because of Christ's accomplishment of our salvation on earth? But remember that Satan was quickly cast where? He was cast down to the earth where he began to pursue or continue to pursue the woman and her offspring to devour them. We then encountered a beast that rose from the sea and also a beast that came up from the earth. These beasts we discovered uh, worked for the dragon. Uh, they do battle against the people of God. The, the scene then for some time now has been very earthly. The focus has been upon that which threatens the church as as she sojourns where as she sojourns upon the earth but in chapters 14 and 15 the scene is heavenly again Uh, the lamb is seen standing on the heavenly mount zion the 144,000 are there with him singing a new song to god as he is seated where as he is seated upon his heavenly throne angels fly overhead with a heavenly message to proclaim. They are proclaiming that message to people living on the earth, but we are given the heavenly vantage point of it. These angels fly overhead with a heavenly message to proclaim. In verse 13, a voice is heard from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then in verse 14, Behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Verse 17, then another angel came out of the temple, where? Out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. 15.1, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And then 15.5, after this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around uh, their chests. And so we must observe this thing, that the setting has obviously shifted now from earth to heaven. As we have moved from chapters 12 and 13 to chapters 14 and 15. And herein lies the central purpose of the book of Revelation. To provide the Christ follower with God's eternal, unlimited, and perfectly true perspective on how things have been, are, and will be in heaven and on earth. So that the child of God might live according to that truth. Uh, This really is the central purpose of the book of Revelation, to reveal to us how things are truly and really in heaven and on earth so that we might order our lives according to that truth. Uh, You and I can see with our natural eyes how things are on earth, can't we? We can look around and we can see things. We can perceive them with our uh, natural eyes. Senses. We can know something of, of history. We can know something of the state of affairs in the world today. But we should remember that things are not always as they might appear to us. And there are really two reasons for this that come to my mind at least. One, we must remember that we are very limited in our ability to rightly perceive even the natural world, even the world in which we live. You and I uh, do see the world, but we see it from such a limited vantage point. 
our experiences is really very small. You are but one individual looking at the world from one vantage point, and you've lived upon this planet for such a short period of time. And this is true for the young and old amongst us. Really, we have such a brief time here on this planet. Our time on this earth is is very short, and our knowledge of the world is really very small. Uh, This we might call the problem of finitude. We are limited creatures, and we are not the creator. We have been created as finite beings. We are confined to live in one place at one time, our knowledge of the world being very limited indeed. And when we add to the problem of our creaturely limitations, the problem of sin, we do begin to understand just how needful we are of God's revelation to us, even as it pertains to the right understanding of this world in which we, are, in which we live. We, we are very limited when it comes to knowledge and experience, but we should not forget that the world is also deceptive, and so too are our hearts We are prone to misinterpret even those things that we do perceive with our natural senses. We are limited and sinful creatures living in a deceptive world so that even those things that we do perceive with our natural eyes, they are not always as they might appear to us. We stand in need of God's revelation in order for us to even rightly understand the world in which we do now live. If you're beginning to feel a sense of hopelessness in regard to your ability to know what is true, then I've actually accomplished my objective. Uh, Indeed, man in his natural and sinful state is very limited in regard to his ability to interpret the world aright. I look around and I see men puffed up with pride and very arrogant, thinking that they do have the ability to understand what is true from in and of themselves. Indeed, this is why we so need God's revelation to us. I am here speaking not only of the book of Revelation that we are now studying, but of all of God's special revelation of which the book of Revelation is a part. We, given our creatureliness and given our sinfulness, do need God to reveal truth to us. us. This is so not only as it pertains to the right knowledge of God and not only as it pertains to the future, but even as it pertains to a right understanding of the world in which we now live. And if it is true that we need God's revelation to rightly interpret the world in which we now live, the world that we can actually experience with our natural senses, how much more do we need God's revelation to understand the world that lies beyond our sense perception. The heavenly realm is truly veiled to us. We could know nothing of it unless the God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth determined to graciously reveal it to us. And so do you see, brothers and sisters, that that God has provided both for us here in the book of Revelation. The book constantly shifts between a focus upon heaven to a focus upon earth and then back again. It is as if God is saying to us, children, here is how you are to understand all that you experience in the world. And then he says, children, here is the reality of thing, how things are in heaven. And why has he revealed these things to us? It is so that we might order our lives according to how things really are in heaven and upon earth 
He has revealed it so that we might know the truth, and the truth will indeed set us free, John 8, 32. And so let us now turn our attention to verses 1 through 5 of Revelation 14. And as we give attention to this text, I think three things will become clear. One, it is important that we must know that the Lamb of God does stand upon the heavenly Mount Zion. Two, with him stand the 144,000 who have been sealed by God. And three, these do give glory to God who is seated upon his throne. These are the three things that are revealed to us here in verses 1 through 5 of Revelation 14. First of all, let us consider the Lamb whom John saw in verse 1 standing upon the heavenly Mount Zion. There's hardly a need for me to explain to you who this Lamb represents, for you should know him well by this point in time. Uh, Here we have a representation of Jesus the Christ. The one who, after being introduced as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who, was, who has conquered in, in Revelation 5.5, 5, was then seen by John as a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That is Revelation 5.6. Now here, John again sees the lamb. But where is he now? He is standing upon Mount Zion, and he is standing in victory. I think this is very significant, especially when we consider what has dominated the visions shown to John as of late. Think of it, church. In in chapter 12, John was shown a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads seven diadems. This dragon was cast to the earth, where he is said to pursue God's people with great wrath because he knows that his time is short. After that, John saw a beast rising up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And then he saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. Uh, these war against the people of God. These act on behalf of the dragon. And so the visions have been earthly. And the thing being emphasized in chapters 12 and 13 is that the church is under attack and that the church has enemies who who do oppose them. Uh, And to be quite honest, I do grow concerned for the church when we linger in those sections of the book of Revelation that look at things from the earthly perspective, emphasizing all that threatens us in the world, I grow a bit concerned for the church, and why? Because here we are considering only a small part of the book of Revelation, and it is really quite negative, isn't it, in, in some respects? The book of Revelation is here portraying in very vivid imagery, saying, you, you are in a war, you are in a battle, and your enemy is great, your enemy is ferocious. Uh, and if we linger there for too long, the, the Christian might grow weary and discouraged as uh, he or she considers these truths, it is important that we hear these truths. It's important for us to know our adversary so that we might walk in a sober way and with vigilance in this world, being wise to the schemes of the evil one. But if we linger in these sections for too long, we run the risk of losing sight of the message of the book of Revelation, which is that though our adversary be great, our Lord is greater still. He has conquered, and he does stand in victory even now. He will indeed bring his people safely home 
this book, when rightly understood, should not lead the people of God to despair, but to have confidence and courage in Christ Jesus. And so, how refreshing it is to turn uh, from chapter 13 to chapter 14. How refreshing it is to turn from our focus upon our detestable enemies to gaze upon our victorious Savior standing now upon Mount Zion. Indeed, at just the right time, the book of Revelation does direct our eyes heavenward, lest we be overrun with despair. Uh, It is possible that this reference to Mount Zion here in 14.1 is a reference to the earthly Mount Zion, for that is the name of a mountain within the borders of the earthly city of Jerusalem. Uh, It is really a very significant place, being mentioned often in the pages of Holy Scripture. Uh, Many important things did happen there on that mountain in the history of redemption. And indeed, there will come a day when the Lord will stand upon that earthly mountain with his redeemed in the new heavens and the new earth. The question is, does this passage describe that day? Is this the earthly Mount Zion that is in view here in Revelation chapter 14? I I do not think so because everything in this passage does suggest that this is a reference to a heavenly scene and the heavenly Mount Zion. The entire scene is heavenly as we have seen and and will see uh, in the future. Uh, And indeed, this interpretation, the one that says that this is the Christ, the Lamb, standing upon the heavenly Mount Zion, is perfectly in step with the rest of the book of Revelation. Remember, brothers and sisters, that we have been shown time and time again visions of God's throne. Where? In heaven. And we have been shown visions of the temple in heaven, the altar in heaven, and those who do worship there. The book constantly shifts from earth to heaven and then back again, showing that heaven and earth correspond uh, to one another. Uh, This would also be in keeping with the rest of Scripture, which makes a distinction between the earthly Mount Zion and the heavenly one. I want you to remember what the writer to the Hebrews said when he was developing the argument that the new covenant and its forms of worship are better than the old. Do you, you, you know, this is the argument of the book of Hebrews. Here he is writing to Christians, many of them Jewish Christians, who are struggling now with new covenant worship. They had been so accustomed to going to the temple and offering up sacrifices there, animal sacrifices and burning incense and, and all of the rest. They had been so used to uh, tangible forms of worship. Now under the old covenant, those things have been taken away. And there is a new form of worship under the Old Covenant. He's speaking to them, and the argument that he is making is that you have not come to something less, but you've come to something more. The thing that you have now under the Old Covenant is not worse, but better. In fact, you have come to something that is far greater than what those under the Old Covenant enjoyed, though indeed they did worship God truly under the Old Covenant. He says to them in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, but you, Christ follower, but you... Now that Christ has come under the old covenant, under the new covenant, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, listen carefully, the heavenly 
Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Uh, if, if we were to take a little bit more time here to explain what the writer to the Hebrews is saying, he is saying that those old covenant forms of worship, the earthly temple, the earthly city of Jerusalem, the earthly Mount Zion, are but a type of the heavenly things. And you have come not to the earthly things. Now that the Christ has come and that he has died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, you in this new covenant, even though your worship be so simple and non-tangible, you are coming to something greater. You are approaching the heavenly Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, where angels do worship and festal gathering. Uh, You have something better in Christ Jesus. For those things of old simply pointed forward to Christ. And to his coming. And now he is here. And where is he? He is not on earth, but he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We are seated there with him in the heavenly places where he has ascended if we are in Christ Jesus. Earthly Mount Zion does in the scriptures signify God's presence with his people and the place from which deliverance comes and protection is given. Earthly Mount Zion in the scriptures, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, does signify these things. It is a place where God um, does have fellowship with his people. It was there upon Mount Zion that Abraham went to offer up his son Isaac, right? And God provided a substitute, a a, a, a ram uh, to take his place. Uh, many important things happened there on Mount Zion. It is a place of deliverance and protection. It is a place of provision. It is the place where the remnant of Israel is preserved by God. That is the symbolism associated with that mountain. And now I want you to think of this imagery in light of all we have been considering in the book of Revelation as of late. Think of it. We have just come through Revelation chapters 12 and 13. The scene is earthly. There the people of God are sojourning. The woman and her offspring are in the wilderness. And what is going on there in the wilderness place except for that the dragon is pursuing the people of God in that place. Our enemies are fierce. Our enemies are ferocious. The dragon is filled with wrath and wants to consume us. And then we turn the page from Revelation chapter 13 to 14. And what do we see except our Lord standing upon Mount Zion? There he is. That is the place from where our salvation will come. The message is this. Be encouraged, Christian. Be encouraged, followers of Christ. Though you face many hardships and trials in this world, though your adversary is great, your Lord is enthroned in heaven and he is victorious and he is ready and able to help you in your time of need. Actually, it is Psalm 121 that comes to mind. It is a song of ascents that the people of God would sing as they would sojourn up to Jerusalem and to the temple. And here is what it says. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? 
My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Our Lord, the Lamb of God, does stand upon the heavenly Mount Zion. We are to lift our eyes to that holy hill and to see that that is the place where our help does come from, our Lord who is risen and ascended. Secondly, notice that with him in this vision shown to John stand the 144,000 sealed by God. You will remember that this is the second time in the book of Revelation that the 144,000 have been mentioned. We heard of them for the first time in Revelation chapter 7. It was in that interlude between the breaking of the sixth and seventh seals. And John heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, Revelation 7, 4. And after this, John heard the numbering And the listing of each of the tribes, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, and so on and so forth. The 144,000 were numbered in this way. And do remember that the list made it clear that this is not a reference to ethnic and old covenant Israel, but to the multi-ethnic new covenant Israel with Christ at the head. I don't know if you remember that from way back in our consideration of Revelation chapter 7. In that text, the 144,000 represent the totality of God's people on earth who live in the midst of tribulation. This is very significant. In that text, the first time we were introduced to the 144,000, they represented the totality of God's people on earth who live in the midst of tribulation. The message was this, they are numbered by God, signifying that he knows them Personally, So here is God pouring out his judgments upon the earth even now. But what is the message? His people are known by him. They are numbered by him. He is able to keep them, therefore. They belong to him, and he will keep those who belong to him. They are God's people also numbered for war. Remember under the Old Covenant, uh, in the Old Testament, we would have... Um, Record of, of the people of Israel being numbered. And oftentimes they were numbered for battle, to go to battle. Indeed, that is the thing being portrayed there in Revelation chapter 7. Though God be pouring out his, his judgments upon the world, partial and perpetual judgments, he knows those who belong to him. They are sealed by him on earth. He will keep them even as they engage in this holy war, a war fought not with the sword and shield, but with the weapons of faith. And so now how wonderful it is for us to see the 144,000 again in the book of Revelation. But this time, notice, we see them not from the earthly perspective, but from the heavenly perspective. We see them standing on heavenly Mount Zion with Christ. And I want you to notice a few things about them. One, they are seen standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Again, there is some debate as to what this scene signifies. Uh, Do we have here a picture of all of God's people standing with Christ after the consummation in the new heavens and the new earth? Um, I don't think so. 
for the scene is a heavenly one and not an earthly one? Or is this a reference to those who have died in Christ, their souls being present with the Lord? Do you understand this interpretation? Perhaps what we have here is an image of those who have passed from this world and who are now in the presence of the Lord uh, in soul, but not in body. In this case, the vision would be very similar to the one in Revelation 6, 9 through 10, where when the fifth seal was opened, John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had been had borne. It'd be similar to, to that vision, right? Uh, the difference, of course, would be that instead of the slain being portrayed as under the altar as sacrificial victims, they are being portrayed as victorious. I think this is a possible interpretation that is the interpretation of the 144,000 symbolizing those who have died in Christ and having gone to glory being in his presence spiritually it is possible but it seems to me that the best interpretation is to see the 144,000 here in 14:1 as referring to the same group of people as in chapter 7, but seen from the heavenly perspective instead of the earthly one. Uh, The 144,000, in my opinion, represent all of God's people who do live upon the earth. They are numbered for war. They are sealed by him so that they might be kept in the midst of tribulation. But the truth that must not be overlooked is that these, though they be engaged in holy war, living upon the earth, are truly present with Christ in the heavenly places even now. I want you just to listen to what Paul said to the Christians living in Ephesus in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. He's talking to Christians who were alive when he wrote, living in the city of Ephesus. And he is reminding them of all of the blessings that they have in Christ Jesus. He he reminds them of their former life, first of all, before they came to Christ, how they used to live like the world. You know, and we're by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. He is reminding them of that first, but then he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been said, you, you've been made alive in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus these Christians indeed it is true of all who have faith in Christ are made alive in Christ are raised with him and are seated with him where brothers and sisters even as we live on this earth here we are present on earth alive on earth where are we truly seated though according to Paul We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places even now. It is because we have been united to him by faith. We are there with him already, though we do await the consummation where we will enjoy the fullness of his presence. I I do believe that this is the thing being symbolized here in Revelation 14, 1 through 5. Though we do live upon the earth, and though we do experience many difficulties in this place, being assaulted continuously by the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, Our Savior stands on Mount Zion and we are with him in the spirit even even now. This should be tremendously comforting to us, especially as we have kind of labored in chapters 12 and 13 for some time and have been consumed with this idea of our enemies. But to see 
our risen Lord on Mount Zion and to understand that we are there with him now in his presence should be tremendously encouraging. Two, notice that these are sealed, having Christ's name and his father's name written on their foreheads, Revelation 14, 1. In chapter 7, we were simply told that the 144,000 were sealed. We weren't told uh, what the seal was exactly. Here it is revealed to us that they are sealed, we are sealed, with the name of God and the name of Christ. These do belong to God and Christ and they serve him a day and night. Now clearly, this is meant to stand in contrast with what we have just heard about the beast and his followers. All who belong to him, to the beast, are marked on the right hand or forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of man and his number is 666, Revelation 13, 16 through 18. Here we are shown then at the end of chapter 13 and at the beginning of chapter 14 that all of humanity is divided into two camps. There are those who belong to the beast, and there are those who belong to God and his Christ. There's no third camp, but only these two. Those who belong to the beast are marked on the forehead. Their minds and their souls do belong to him. Uh, That is the symbolism of the forehead there. The Jewish people thought that the the forehead was kind of the seat or the the, the core of of man. It was the place where the the mind and the soul uh, do reside. So to be marked on the forehead, it, it indicates ownership or possession, but as if these mind and soul do belong uh, to the beast the right hand uh, symbolizes our strength the things that we do our will Uh, these do belong to the beast in, in the sense that they obey him they do his work but those who belong to God and Christ have the name of God and Christ written upon them written upon their forehead they are God's possession and the promise is that God will preserve and protect Uh, those who are his and i do appreciate that the mark of the beast is called a mark but the mark that those who belong to christ have is called a seal there is a difference satan does own people but he does not promise to preserve and protect them Uh, christ owns people as well there are some who belong to him but with that ownership with that possession comes the promise to protect and preserve, which is the thing that a seal does. A seal indicates protection and preservation. Notice where those who have the mark of the beast dwell, they are earth dwellers. But where do those who have taken the name of God and of Christ dwell? Though they live upon the earth, they are standing with Christ on heavenly Mount Zion. This is not our home, brothers and sisters. Uh, Three, notice how the 144,000 are described. In verse four, we read, it is these, the 144,000, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. If taken literally then, If 
the 144,000, if the number is taken literally and the description of them is taken literally, then we have here um, a kind of special class of Christian, I guess, being uh, referred to. Only those who have lived a celibate life, they are virgins, and only men also because they are described as those who have not defiled themselves with women. Also, they have never lied and they are blameless in every way. If taken literally, uh, that would need to be our conclusion that these 144,000 are a kind of special class of, of Christian. It is better to see verses 4 through 5 as a symbolic description of all who are faithful to Christ, who have not defiled themselves uh, with the world by bowing to idols, but who have remained true to their profession, that Jesus is Lord. It is a symbolic description of them, and it is a heavenly and spiritual description of them. Uh, One should remember that frequently in the Old Testament, Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness, their idolatry, is often referred to as adultery. They have been unfaithful to their God. They have been adulterous. They are in some places called whores. They have gone whoring after the gods of Babylon. They have bowed themselves to idols. And so this is the terminology that uh, the scriptures oftentimes use. And one should also remember that later in the book of Revelation, we're going to be introduced to another enemy of God's people. Uh, The harlot will be introduced to us. She will be seen riding upon the first beast to tempt the saints to abandon the faith through immorality, which is unfaithfulness to God. And remember that in Revelation 19.7 and 21.2, the church is described as the bride of Christ, faithful and true. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So we have to take into consideration all of the imagery that is contained within the book of Revelation also. That being faithful to Christ in this world, not bowing the knee to idols, not compromising in the true worship of God, uh, is, is, like, is like maintaining your chastity, as you will, your spiritual chastity uh, unto the Lord, remaining pure to Him and remaining undefiled. The 144,000 are described in this way, not to indicate that they are literally celibate males only, uh, to but to symbolize the church's unwavering devotion to Christ the Lord. The phrase, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins, indicates their spiritual faithfulness. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Uh, That is how the church is to walk in this world. We are to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb and in their mouth no lie was found for they are blameless these are the ones who have been true to their profession of faith they are ceremonially pure having been made pure by the blood of the lamb and so the message should be clear that it is far better to stand with Christ and to take his mark than to go the way of the world taking the mark of the beast upon yourself. It might be tempting to do it because to do it will mean prosperity in this world. But it will not be worth it in the end 
For truly, Christ is the one who is victorious. For truly, he is the one who has the ability to give life eternal and life abundant. Lastly, recognize that these do give glory to God, who is seated upon the throne. Uh, In verse 2, John says that he heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the Lord and before the the four living creatures and before the elders. No one can learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So what are these doing except that they are offering up praise to God who is seated on the throne? Do remember that, that worship is a central theme of the book of Revelation, uh, these, these scenes arise from time to time and what, what, what is happening except for that uh, men and women and also angels are worshiping God. The glory of God is a central theme in the book of Revelation. We have been redeemed by Christ. We are preserved and, pres- uh, uh, preserved and protected by him so that we might give him the glory. We are to give him the glory now in this world, but we will give him the glory for all eternity also. And notice that the redeemed are here found singing a new song. It is a new song. And I think this should remind us of Psalm 144, 9 through 10, which says, I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp, I will play to you who gives victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. And that fits with the context, doesn't it? That here are the people of God numbered for war. And and the psalmist in Psalm 144 is saying, I will sing to you a new song and I will sing it on harps. And that is the scene in heaven that the people of God are on earth engaged in holy war, but they are giving worship to God in heaven. And the sound of them is like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And notice that it is a song. The song that they sing is one that only the 144,000 can sing. Not even the angels can sing this song. They cannot learn it. Now, why would this be? I think it is important to remember that the angels are not redeemed creatures. Some have rebelled and they are fallen. They are eternally condemned. Other angels remained upright and were then confirmed in their righteousness. There is no redemption needed for the elect angels um, who never fell. They, They are Righteous, They they are not in need of a redeemer. Uh, There is none offered to them uh, because there is no need for a redeemer. There is no angelic savior. But we humans have a redeemer who is Christ the Lord. And so we may sing to him like no other in in all of God's creation. Uh, Angels might give glory to God concerning the salvation that he has provided. That is true. But he has provided it not for them, but for man. And so they are a kind of third party looking in upon it with astonishment, giving glory to God. Look at how merciful and gracious you have been, God, to them, to those creatures, to those human beings. Uh, But we, the people of God, can sing to God a unique kind of song uh, because we are the ones who have been redeemed. We know what it is 
to have been rescued by God out of our pitiful state. We know what it is to have been freed by God from our bondage, to have been given new life where once we were dead. We human beings, we fallen creatures, those who have been brought to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, have the unique ability to sing this this new song uh, to the Lord for our deliverance. Uh, Truly, all things are to the glory of God. We have been redeemed so that we might worship and serve our blessed Savior and the Father who, having loved us, did send him to accomplish our redemption. Uh, Brothers and sisters, uh, though I do pray that our study of Revelation chapters 12 and 13 helped to make you sober concerning our adversary, the devil, and the powers that he uses to wage war against us. I mean, I hope that was effective, that it in some ways kind of woke you up to the fact that you are, you are at war right now as a Christian living in this world. And even if you feel as if you not, are not, you are at war. And maybe the thing that the enemy is using right now is comfort to lull you into a state of sleepiness and complacency uh, so that he might overcome you. You are at war, and we need to be wise to this. But I also do pray that the opening scene of Revelation 14 brings comfort to you as you fix your eyes upon our risen Lord. He stands upon the heavenly Mount Zion and we stand with him, sealed with his name and his father's name written upon our foreheads so that we might follow him wherever he leads. Let's bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, I do pray that you would help us Uh, to understand your word. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that their minds would be changed so that they might see the world in this way and so that they might also understand the reality in heaven as you have revealed it to us. Do transform our minds, Lord, as your people so that we would see things according to your revealed truth. And having transformed our minds and our hearts, Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk faithfully with you in this world. Lord, help us to apply this text to our lives. Help us to apply it to our day-to-day living. May it change the way that we think. May it change the way that we speak. May it change the things that we do with our hands, Lord. I pray that you would make us your holy people, a faithful people to you. We thank you, Lord, that by Christ's shed blood, we are righteous before you. We stand before you now as, as virgin soldiers who have not been defiled in whose mouth there is no deceit, Lord. We thank you for the blood of Christ, which cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Lord, but would you make us more faithful in this world, actually? I pray for young and old that we would all serve you in this world, that we would take seriously the things that we think, say, and do. May all that we think, say, and do be to your glory, honor, and praise, Lord, for you are worthy. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.